We will read chapter 9, verse 38 first. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. Uh, please turn with me now to our New Testament reading, which is in the book of John. We will be reading from John chapter 2, from verse 13 to 22. John chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. 
and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you always that you are a God who speaks, a God who reveals yourself to us. And as we look at this word, which is your word to us, it is the word of your people, their, their prayer. So as we think about their prayers, we think about the things they're praying through, we ask for your Spirit's help. Help us understand this. Help us to be impacted by it, to engage with it, to have our minds, uh, to help our minds to understand what is being written, to help our hearts to embrace this joyfully. We ask, Father, too, for your Spirit's help for me, to help me to speak clearly from this as I ought. And we ask all of these things for your glory and our joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Repentance. When you hear that word, it comes to your mind. Do we treat repentance in the same way that we treat Brussels sprouts? Have you ever tried these? Yeah? No one's, yeah, Amanda's not having, like, no one is joyfully going, yeah! Right? We know, because if you've ever tried these, you know that they're disgusting. Right? These mini cabbages that aren't mini cabbages at all, taste bitter, they got a very weird texture, and they smell like feet. <laughs> and apparently, they're good for you. Right? Apparently, they've got lots of good health benefits, right? Packed with good nutrients. But do we treat repentance like Brussels sprouts? We don't really like it but we know it's good for us, and so begrudgingly, we'll take a dose of it every so often. Repentance as a word, repentance as a thought, repentance as a concept doesn't sound tasty. It isn't very appealing. But we know that it's part of what we should be doing as Christians. Yet, is there a way to see that repentance is not only vital, but also an action to be embraced with joy? That's where we're kind of going today. Today is part two of this prayer by the people of Israel that we began unpacking last week. So let's set the scene again. You've got to rewind the clock quite a fair bit. We've got to go to around just over 400 BC, 400 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, the, timeline, uh, the timeline is that we're over three weeks into the New Year. So remember in chapter 8, when we began looking at chapter 8 on, on New Year's Day, actually, three, uh, two weeks ago, 
Uh, the people gathered together for celebration and rejoicing, and coincidentally, it was also their new year. Uh, they read from God's word, and they feasted together. Uh, about two weeks after those celebrations finished, the people came together again, but this time it wasn't for celebration. It was for mourning, for grief. We read in the first part of that prayer last week a long confession of sin. The long details of their history was laid out and the people were grieved at what they had done, calling on God's mercy to remember them and to save them from their present slavery. So in our passage today, Nehemiah 10, the prayer continues. They have confessed their sins and now they're going to make some fresh commitments to obey and serve God. Nehemiah 10 is a long prayer of repentance, the people committing to action. Now pick it up again from the last verse of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 38. Read it again with me. Because of all this, that is everything that they've just confessed, we make a firm covenant in writing. On on the sealed document are the names of our princes and our Levites and our priests. Everyone is gathered, the the princes, the Levites, the priests, and you get a very long list of those representatives in the first half of chapter 10. But skim over it, right? You've got the names of priests from verses 1 to 8. Have a look at verse 9. You get a list of then the Levites. From verse 14, you'll notice the phrase, the chiefs of the people. So these are key leaders. And then importantly, for our benefit, uh, it's all summarized in chapter 10, verse 38, right? Uh, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. That is a very fancy way of saying everyone in the nation of Israel. Everyone is gathered, everyone is involved, and everyone is committed to making these promises to God. What's the main promise? Read with me verse 29. All these people, will everyone join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. Now there, see, I glance over that again, and you'll notice this kind of language which which hyperlinks back to the Old Testament covenants in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They promise to enter into a curse and an oath, a curse that if anyone should break this covenant, this promise, if anyone should break this promise, the curses of the Old Testament would rain down on them. They enter into an oath, right? A serious, a weighty, a solemn promise for action. And the action being to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, to pick up the first five books of the Bible, to read them, to understand them, and to live them out. The the covenant they enter into, the promise they are making on pain of curse and death is that they will obey God's word and live it out. They've had a long history. They've just confessed their long history of all of their sins, of how they've consistently disobeyed God and his word. And they had a consistent pattern of doing that. And so here at this prayer now, they're committing, we have the beginning of repentance. They've confessed their sins, and now they're committed to turning from them. Now, the specifics of what they're committing to begins uh, from verse 30. And you get these two very quick lines from verse 30 to 39. Uh, 
you get two very quick lines in verse 30 and 31, which pack way more into them than first meets the eye. Right? The first commitment is a negative one. They will not marry foreigners or give their children in marriage to foreigners. Now, what's going on here? Be really clear from the start that this has nothing to do with race. It's got nothing to do with race. It's got everything to do with religious purity. That's the point that Moses makes in the law originally, right? If you go to Exodus 34 or Deuteronomy chapter 7, right? Don't let your children marry foreigners because they will turn the hearts of your children away from serving the Lord. Foreigners have their own gods. If they marry your children, then your children will be in danger of walking away from the true and living God, the God who has saved you, the God who is calling you to be his people. Great King Solomon is a prime example of this. Not only did he have hundreds of wives and how he handled that many mother-in-laws, I have no idea, superhuman strength of some sort, right? But many of his wives were foreigners. And then we tragically read in his story that his heart was turned away from serving the true and living God to serve the false gods of his many wives. The principle then is carried actually over into the New Testament for Christians today. And no, it's not found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which is an often misused passage about dating and marrying non-believers. So don't use it that way. Uh, there are a few other passages and other passages which contain the implications of not marrying non-believers. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if widows want to be remarried, then they certainly can, but only in the Lord. Right? That is an instruction that those who can choose who they want to marry must marry only in the Lord. They must marry only a fellow believer. Another passage to consider is essentially Ephesians chapter 5. There, Paul says that the marriage between a Christian husband and a Christian wife is to be a picture of how Jesus and the church relate to each other. Christian marriage is a picture of the gospel. That picture breaks down and doesn't work if one of the partners to that marriage is a non-believer. So friends, let me say to you, don't do it. If you're a Christian here, Please do not date or marry a non-believer. It's not simply a wisdom issue. It's an obedience issue. In my pastoral experience, there are only two ways that it can go. One, if you try and maintain your faith and you want to keep faithful and try to be connected to a church and, and see if you can serve there, then your spouse will actually end up feeling neglected because you want to put Jesus first in your life. It always ends in deep sadness and grief for your spouse and your family. Alternatively, if you marry a non-believer, they will inevitably turn you away from wholehearted devotion to Jesus. I've seen this happen that, I've seen that happen more often. And it ends up with you walking away from the faith. So please, 
Don't do it. In this commitment from Israel is a strong warning for all of God's people. Now, I know that some people will probably have a number of questions about that. So let me invite you to come and speak to me afterwards. But we want to see very quickly here. In this one small verse, we have an acknowledgement of the bad history of God's people. A sin against God and his command, and now a commitment to keep what was originally commanded. Now, the same goes for the next line in verse 31. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain, any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So again, another commitment here framed in the negative. They, they committed not to buying food or trading on the Sabbath or any other holy day. So what's wrong with buying food or any other goods on the Sabbath? Is it wrong that after this church service is over, we head to the Indrapilly or the Tuong food court and buy lunch? Yes, it is. Read the word. No. Um, <laughs> to answer that, you've got to remember what the Sabbath was all about. Right? The Sabbath was a day of rest. A day committed to resting from work and labor. A day to remember God, the God who saved them. And crucial here, remember the God who provides for them. Right? The specific issue here in verse 31 is buying and selling trading goods. The Israelites were committed to not trying to provide for themselves, to trust that God would provide for their needs. This is so important for a nation that had just returned from exile and whose city was basically still in ruin. God would provide for them. So don't break the Sabbath. Don't distrust God by trying to handle life for yourself. Notice in the, <coughs> excuse me, notice in the last sentence, they also forego any crops in the seventh year and exaction of debts. And two very quick com commitments are here, uh, but they're very big. They're committing not just to resting on the Sabbath day of the week, but they're also committing to resting their fields every Sabbath year. Right? So again, another law that they're picking up from the Old Testament, to, to rest their farming lands, to rotate their farming lands on a seven-year basis so, so that every seventh year, one field would have rest from being farmed. Now, this commitment would be very costly for them. But again, another commitment to relying on God to provide enough food for them from their other fields. The second commitment is to forget any and every debt in that same Sabbath year. Again, built on what God has already said in the law. So you loaned money to a fellow Israelite, right? Not only could you not charge interest, you weren't allowed to charge interest to your fellow Jew or fellow Israelite. But on the Sabbath year, on that seventh year, the remainder of that debt would be cancelled. Can you imagine signing a mortgage on the sixth year? And that might sound ridiculous, but that was the law. And what that did mean, too, that if you were giving, if you were loaning money on the sixth year, you had to know that it was going to cost you. Because the next year, that entire debt would be forgiven. This law was in place as an act of generosity, a generosity that reflected God's own generosity to his people, a law that was also in place as an act of biblical justice so that in God's nation, among his people, there would be no poor or oppressed who were to be forgotten or not cared for. So they're committing not only just to resting on the seventh, seventh day, resting their fields and, their, and debt forgiveness as well. 
And then you, you notice, I hope you noticed as we were reading it, something really interesting about this passage. The third commitment is essentially a commitment to maintain the temple. But did you notice that the instructions are detailed and they go forever from verses 30, 32 to 39? See, on word count, you have a look at that passage, right? The, the, word, the first commitment to not intermarry is only 19 words long. At verse 31, uh, the commitment to the Sabbath is 31, uh, 49 words long. But the instructions for maintaining the temple run a whopping 346 words. What's going on there? Now, this is for everyone, especially for the young kids here. If you're reading your Bibles and you're getting into it and you're thinking, why is the Bible spending so much time here? This is really important because this is one of the things we need to pay attention to when we're reading the Bible. When you see, something, when you see so much time in a passage devoted to one topic, that tells you something about the importance of that topic to the author. So pay close attention to what is being said. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to tease out all the fine details for our sake, but let's quickly walk over them, and you'll see quickly that the details are grouped into three main concerns. The first concern is to do with the tithe to the temple, right? The portion of money set aside for the maintenance and the upkeep of the temple and also for all the various events that happen around the temple, like the sacrifices and the feasts. So in verse 32 to 33, they promise one-third of a shekel. One-third of everything that Israel earned would go to the temple. That was their tithe. That's a bit bigger than the 10% that we tend to think of as a tithe. The second concern is wood, verse 34. Uh, lots are cast among the people to provide wood at different times uh, of the year because the wood was going to keep the altar of the Lord burning, which was meant to burn 24-7. The third concern is support of the priests. They are to bring them to them the fruit of their labor, verse 35 to 37. The Levitical priests didn't have a land of their own, but they were dedicated as a tribe wholly to servicing the temple. And so they needed financial and physical support from everyone else. Right, so you can see here the temple is the main focus. In every verse, from verses 32 to 39, there is a reference to the house of God or the house of the Lord. Why so much focus and emphasis on maintaining and providing for this building in the middle of Jerusalem? Remember, it was false worship That was one of the main reasons the people were sent off into exile. It was was them bowing down to false gods and idols that got them kicked out of the promised land. And so now they are back in the promised land and they are committing themselves not just to upkeep of a building, but to proper worship. The people knew that their biggest need was reconciliation with God. Think about what they currently have as the people coming back in. They rebuilt the walls, but remember that rebuild was a bit janky. It was quite amateurish. What else did they have? Not much else. So that's why they're remaking the covenant with God. Because relationship with God was their biggest need. And they needed the temple to be taken care of because that was the place to find reconciliation with God, to be in right relationship with him once again. The temple was the place to do that. 
was the place where you brought your offerings, your sacrifices, the place where the priest would offer up the, these things on your behalf. If the people are not reconciled to God, then right, confessing their sins wouldn't do them much good. Right? Saying no to greed, saying no to lust and murder, saying no to racism and inequality, all these things are good, but without reconciliation to God, it won't take you far. So at the heart of their lives is the temple and sacrifices paid for and supported by the people with their tithes and their offerings. False worship got them kicked out of the promised land. Right worship involved focusing on the temple, tithing to it, providing for the priests, committing themselves to this duty. Now take a step back and let's survey again quickly what we've seen. All the people gathered in prayer, confessing their sins and repenting together, turning from their sins and turning to God and turning from the sin of intermarriage, turning from breaking the Sabbath and turning to God in the temple, being reconciled to him and properly worshipping him. This is what repentance is. In chapter 9, they confess their sins, but that was only half the story. Confessions are only as good as the repentance that followed. Confession is only as good as the repentance that follows. Proper confession is not just feeling bad about your sins, right? We are experts at that already. I don't need to convince you how to feel bad about your sins, right? In fact, I I could actually stand here and preach a sermon that would make you feel really bad about your sins, but none of that would do you any good. Feeling bad, bad about your sins is a start, but proper repentance is about recognizing how bad they are, bringing them before a good God who will forgive and justify, and then committing in repentance to turning away from doing those sins again. There's this kind of dual movement when it comes to repentance. You can see here in these two chapters, in this long prayer from Israel, repentance wasn't just about saying sorry and promising not to do it again, but it was also turning towards God in true and proper worship. Now, what do we do with this? How how do we, living in the 21st century, apply this? Think Think about the pattern that we've seen today. First, you have to recognize your sin and how God sees them, right? Sin not just about breaking God's rules. It's about our hearts and our motivations, our thoughts and our actions. Those things that we think and do that bring us shame and dishonor to God. The way that we live, which, bring, which gives... So the way that we live in which we give a big middle finger to the, our loving creator. We need to recognize and confess our sins to God. I remember as we saw last week, God is so gracious and kind to forgive. His overflowing love and mercy is built up, ready to pour out. We receive reconciliation with God. But the place where we receive reconciliation is now radically different. See, in the time of Nehemiah, 
Reconciliation with God was connected to the temple, the house of God. But Christians no longer have a physical house of God to go to. The phrase, the house of God or the house of the Lord, should never be equated to this church building. Right? What is this building? Right? It, it, it's, a, it's, a, well, it's, it's more important than just a, a rain shelter and a sun shelter. But it's not the house of God. So if you, if you ever hear the church building being referred to as the house of God, I give you permission to gently slap the person and remind them that they are not an Israelite. The temple that Israel was focused on was always appointed to something greater than itself. The place where God and man meet together in perfect harmony, the temple was always meant to point towards Jesus. Because that's how Jesus understood its meaning. That's what we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and how Jesus said that the temple was going to be torn down but would be raised up again in three days by his power. Now, the Jewish leaders didn't get that, but the disciples later understood that Jesus was referring to his own body. Jesus is now the place where God and man meet together in perfect harmony. Jesus is the place where man and God are reconciled together. And Jesus is now the place that we go to in order to achieve reconciliation with God. Jesus is the one that we trust, the one we go to for the forgiveness of our sins, the one who offers God's pent-up mercy and love. And so once we are reconciled, then we can work on repenting. Repentance that doesn't start with the things that you want to do or want to stop doing. It begins with being reconciled to God through Jesus. That's what we all need. Reconciliation with God. Because there's few pains like the pain of a broken relationship. And when you've hurt someone or you've been hurt by someone, where words were said or yelled, or misunderstanding got out of hand. The relationship is strained. It becomes a thorn in your side. You awkwardly dance around the person, or in very hard cases, you find it hard to look them in the eye. You would rather avoid them at all costs. You know what it's like. You know what it's like to have a slightly strained relationship here at church, and you think to yourself, I'm going to sit on this side of the church because I know that person always sits on that side of the church. And when service is done, I'll have a chat with people here and then I'll rush quickly out this way so I don't have to chat with them. But you know what it's like too when it gets even heavier than that? When you don't want to be near the person at all, when you are afraid to be in their presence or you just feel that massive strain. Now, all of these pains are an echo of a bigger pain, a bigger breakdown. All horizontal pains are a symptom of the vertical pain that we have, our broken relationship with God. Yet God has made a way for us to reconnect with him, to be properly reconciled. The issues are not just swept under the carpet and forgotten. Sin is properly dealt with. On the cross of Jesus Christ, The pain that Jesus suffered, the judgment that he undertook is God's way of saying, I am properly dealing with sin. I am not just simply forgetting it. And there, a healing has taken place. 
we have received such wonderful grace. Being reconciled with God through Jesus then leads us to repentance, not just a singular moment in our lives, but a life of turning from sin and turning back to him, turning back to the amazing God who loves us abundantly, overflowingly, who is pent up with forgiveness and mercy. Bringing our shame and stumbling and failures is hard, but to bring it to this amazing God is a joy. And just like Israel, maybe we need to think through our story, our history, to work out the sins that we are most prone to. Whatever we find, whatever we struggle with, we can take them to God for forgiveness. And then we need to make a commitment to turn away from that sin and to put together an action plan. Maybe like Israel, we'll need to commit to turning away from the sin And not just in the sense of working out when and how we sin and try to avoid that, but also thinking through our worship problem and when when it comes to that sin. So think about the sin that you wrestle with. And at the heart of every sin, remember that there is some form of idolatry, something which is more important to us than worshiping God rightly in that area. So as an example, take anger. I get angry. And I fly into a rage because I have a worship problem. I worship my personal comfort. I worship my own use of time. I worship my way of doing things. And if someone, unfortunately most often my kids, when someone encroaches on that, then I respond with frustration, with anger. Repenting of my anger will not involve just working out strategies of avoiding Anger, like, you know, walking out of the room, counting to 20, taking deep breaths, they're all good. But I'll also need to work on my heart and my worship problem. If I'm worshipping my personal comfort and my own use of time, then I need to reorient those beliefs and those feelings. I need to ask God to help me lay down my life and take up his cross And so when I feel the tension rising again, I can prayerfully ask God, help me lay down my desire for personal comfort. Help me lay down my selfish ways that I spend my time and to follow you. Help me to love the kids in the moment or to respond with grace and kindness. That's one example. And we could work through so many more, but the solutions aren't going to be straightforward. The key thing is that we need to keep identifying the root, bringing that to God, and then working through our repentance. Remember, repentance isn't just a one-off commitment. It's the whole of our lives, over and over until we see Jesus. So never stop and think that you're fine. Keep turning from your sins and turning to God in repentance and faith. If we understand the gospel rightly, and if we understand what Jesus has done, then it will be a joy. Not like Brussels sprouts at all. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is amazing that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We are stunned and we are in awe of your grace and your mercy. For we know 
And maybe some of us need to spend more time meditating and reflecting on our sins, but we know our history with you. We know how often we've turned away, how often we have despised you, rejected you, spat in your face. And yet you continue to hold out mercy and grace to us. How stunning that in Jesus Christ you've called us to faith. So now, help us to keep thinking what is at the heart of our sin. What worship problem exists there? We thank you that in Christ we are reconciled to you. We can truly worship you rightly. And we pray, Father, that you'll give us grace to keep understanding the ways in which we um, love other things more than you. And then grow us in joyful repentance. Grow us in joyfully confessing our sins before you and committing to change. And then grow us through that. Grow change in our lives that we might glorify you, that we might honour you, and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.